Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hello, thank you for joining us for this month's episode. Today we have a wonderful interview that Eva did with Dr. Ayako Abada from the Institute of Developmental Studies and Ideas. And Dr. Abada was here for a workshop for the UAC on the 21st of September of 2018. The workshop was about human behavior and AMR research. And one of our previous interviews that we featured in an episode was with another speaker at this workshop. So it kind of ties into a previous concept that we've talked about. But let's go ahead and listen to the interview and we'll see you back here afterwards. Today we have here uh, Ayako Ebata coming from the Institute of the Developmental Studies uh, from the UK and she is visiting Uppsala because she's been part of the workshop on antibiotic use and human behavior that we had at UAC. So I would like you, Ayako, please to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit the, where you are at right now. Yeah, so I have been working at the Institute of Development Studies, IDS in Sussex in the UK for now two years. I've been engaging with this project in Myanmar on zoonotic diseases and antimicrobial resistance from the veterinary perspective. By training, I am an agricultural economist who has got education from the US and Germany, and I've been working on mostly rural development issues in, in terms of farming communities and so on in the last five to more years. Could you tell us a little bit more specifically, what field do you describe your working in right now? How would you describe it and what name is it known? Mm. So I think what would uh, be a very specific description would be a value chain analysis and value chain research, especially in the context of livestock diseases and AMR and One Health, has become very popular. So a lot of people would be doing that as we speak. Um, but basically what it is, is to look at how an animal products are being made from farms through the traders, uh, slaughterers, um, retailers, to, all the way to consumers. And especially in the context of AMR and uh, livestock diseases, we are looking at where exactly interventions can make a difference when it comes to the risky practices of people or knowledge creation and so on. And my role as an agricultural economist is to look at the economic um, perspective of the value chain. So, for example, who is earning more than others from the whole transaction going from production to consumption? And where are the possible interventions when it comes to tweaking the kinds of profit and costs that are being incurred by each stakeholder? Okay. Um, how did you end up deciding to work in such a, such a field? Yes, it's a very interesting question. So when I was at the university many years ago in the US, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. And I decided that I really liked food and people. So I was able to combine the two with the field of agriculture economics. And that's how I got into this field. And since then, I've been all the way through agriculture economist. But yeah, it's been an interesting journey for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So putting together economy and food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, you are actually applying all this to the field of antimicrobial resistance. What led you to work in the field of antimicrobial resistance uh, coupled with your your previous background? Right. Yeah. So it's actually an interesting story. So I, I finished my PhD a few years ago and I was obviously looking for a job. 
And I found this project on zoonotic diseases and pig production in Myanmar on the IDS website and I applied and I got the job. But um, apart from that, I think I've been quite um, intrigued and also drawn to this field of AMR because it's such a complex issue. And it's interesting because in economics, we always talk about, you know, public health issues like AMR and livestock diseases as what we call externalities. And these are something that the economic system sort of um, ejects into the world, let's say. So it's like a byproduct of the whole economic transactions. But at the same time, in people's lives, it's actually quite important things to look at. So I became very interested in studying AMR from the perspective of, you know, externalities from the economic system, but actually as a central question to people's welfare and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how I got, I got into researching uh, AMR issues. So coming from a, um, a field that in principle is not AMR per se, mm. uh, could you please maybe reflect a little bit what were your, the challenges you found at the beginning of getting yourself familiarized with the AMR world and with the AMR work? Yeah, I think um, it's it's been a very steep learning curve. So when I joined the group, of course, I was working with you know veterinarians uh, who have been working in the field of food safety or infectious disease control for many, many, many years. And then on the other side, there were people from human health background, so people who have been doing health systems analysis, medical anthropological research, and so on. So these were groups of people that I had actually absolutely never interacted with before. And for me to catch up with their knowledge as much as I could was a fairly a challenging thing to do, especially in the short amount of time I had before going to Myanmar to collect data which was supposed to feed into all these different fields of uh, science. So that was quite challenging. Could you mm, tell us a little bit of your experience going actually down to the field in Myanmar and seeing firsthand uh, what's going on on the farms and how mm. uh, do they work with the problem of antimicrobial resistance? Mm. For me, I, I really enjoy field work. So I know it's not... It's not meant for everyone, but I really enjoy uh, going to the fields and seeing the real people, real lives, and like, especially looking at the details of how their everyday life looks like. Um, so for me, it was very exciting, actually. And it, it's also because I was trained as a more quantitative economist. So when I went to the field during my PhD, for instance, or internship, I would just go to one farm for maybe, you know, an hour or two max and then I would have to leave to go to another farm so there was much less interaction with the farmers the benefit of doing this kind of interdisciplinary research on AMR was that I was able to work with you know a very qualitative social scientists who um, needed data that were really in-depth so I could go back to the same people same communities over the course of one year and that was really eye-opening because you get you get to actually know them as a person. When I see the interview transcript, I actually see faces and the farms and houses instead of numbers and so on. So that was really a fulfilling experience for me. And this more 
maybe we can call it humane side of working, how do you think it has affected your work or how you see your work compared to the type of work that you did more numerical or more mm. uh, not so close to you? Yeah, I think it gives much depth. And again, sometimes I have I have an easier time remembering what who said what if I thought about the personal connections. Um, so that was definitely quite a difference from, you know, looking at the numbers that I don't remember the faces at all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, when it comes to things like AMR, there is quite significant implications in real lives of the people that I have been speaking to. So I think it gives me the sense of responsibility and accountability when it comes to me generating any sort of research outputs, and especially in the form of policy recommendations and suggestions to the people in Myanmar. Yeah, very, very interesting. In your experience in your field and when you actually relate to your colleagues that also work in similar topics in AMR, mm-hmm. uh, do you have the feeling uh, that we are now, it's an optimistic uh, situation or is it more of a pessimistic situation that a lot of things should actually be better or that we are actually doing good and of course we need to do better but we're going in the right direction? That's mm. quite difficult to say, I think. I think when I speak to... Um, For example, government officials in uh, low and middle income countries, it's it feels very ambiguous because on one hand, uh, you know, countries like Myanmar have been doing quite a lot when it comes to policy making and developing national action plans for AMR and so on. So the steps are, have been taken and these steps have been approved by the WHO and FAO and all these international organizations. But at the same time, somehow there is that missing link between the formal sector and informal sector. And again, we have very little knowledge of what's going on in the informal sector. So it would be very difficult to be either optimistic or pessimistic. I think when it comes to the global narrative of AMR, we have come very far. And of course, I haven't been working in this field for you know decades, but at least in the last you know two to five years you can see a lot more going on when it comes to government speaking about the risk of AMR and so on and in the UK actually in, the, in recent uh, month we could actually see all these advertisement from the government I suppose talking about AMR issues and use of antibiotics in a more appropriate way and so on so I think when it comes to public awareness again I feel like there has been quite a lot going on but I guess as a social scientist and applied economist, I'm more interested in whether these messages actually translate to actions. And that's where we don't really know how people change behaviors. And I feel like, you know, when we look at our personal behaviors, we don't, I don't really change very quickly, even when I hear new, new findings or whatever. So I would sort of question myself whether hearing something from the news or politicians or experts would actually make me behave in a different way. And again, for how long, how sustainable is my change going to be? That's a different question. So I'm not sure. I think I'll stay very neutral about this um, because it's very ambiguous to me at the moment. Yeah, I, I understand your point. We at the center, we talk sometimes about like, what can we as a center do in order of public awareness and, mm. and which level the public awareness should it be, right? Mm. Like you say, maybe uh, it's not the same as uh, today's uh, one of the teachers at the workshop was saying, it's not the same talking to a child that is like nearly blank that talking to a person that has 20, 30, 40 years of ideas and way of doing things. Yeah. So if, if we could actually implement um, 
some sort of uh, information or education program at levels uh, that are like younger and mm. perhaps like younger generations can actually bring that knowledge to their families because normally right. families listen to to their children when they come and they have learned these things so mm. perhaps we can actually see different ways of uh, bringing uh, this public awareness that might be needed to change behaviors in a in a long term yeah yeah i think one thing that i found very interesting through this amr research was that you know i i often thought that knowledge is being developed but i didn't really think fully about it and i think the more time i spend with practitioners or vets or farmers, the more I'm convinced that people develop knowledge instead of absorb knowledge. So when we are doing you know, public awareness and all these campaigns, that's one thing. But again, that knowledge or piece of information is going to have to go through people's brains where people have their own understandings and backgrounds and knowledge from previous times. And then it's going to also be absorbed into the whole social, economic, political system. So I feel like we should see knowledge dissemination more as a process rather than, you know, okay, top down, we're going to tell you what is better about what you're doing suboptimally and you need to change your behavior, but rather thinking about the whole process. Like, you know, one of the speakers today was talking about how hand washing has become such a process and also uh, each individual has had to go through this particular circle of thoughts and when you go through that process you are like a scientist yourself you discover a fact and that's never going to disappear from your head so i've really come to think like that since i've been working on the same issues knowledge is more a development rather than a piece of fact or information yeah not just reading but actually making it part of your own and your own experience is what is going to make you take one way or another way yeah exactly yeah and i think you know often enough in agriculture extension services um it's sometimes the case that these um, experienced agronomists or vets would go to the farms and then they tell the farmers what to do so then it's like one day workshop you know where you have crammed with ideas and knowledge and so on and like many farmers listen to it of course they're interested and so on but Again, when it comes to sustainability of the use of the information and and also discovering the fact is definitely lacking. So the information doesn't stick to their head very, very much. And then these same extensionists come back to the same farms after six months and then nothing has changed. So, I mean, it is a long investment and probably costly as well to do this whole knowledge development process. But if it's going to be more sustainable, maybe it's actually a better investment of time and money in order to make a more sustainable uh, change in the long run. This is a very good topic to bring up and perhaps uh, mm. people that can make these policies or bre- or help the people that breach the knowledge to the public can think about different yeah. ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's challenging, you know, for especially government officers who are who have to juggle different priorities. And of course, they don't have time to go through the entire process in each individual communities. But I mean, there has been a lot of evidences on, you know, farmer management workshops or farmer uh, field schools and so on, where you have all these very evolving, iterative process of learning rather than dissemination of knowledge. Um, So it's, yeah, it would be very interesting and worthwhile to look at the effects of these. Yeah. Great. Um, we might change now a little bit uh, about the topics and I would like to dwell 
perhaps from your perspective and the time you've been working in AMR, mm -hmm. um, what do you think is missing in your field? What do you think is something that should be put into the agenda and push to research a little bit more? Yeah, so I think the first thing uh, that I've been seeing is the, the importance of the informal sector. Um, in many countries, there are people who are not necessarily registered as doctors, nurses, or veterinarians, and so on. But there are people, these are people who are quite important when it comes to catering to the you know large mass of people who may lack healthcare for both animals and humans. And therefore, these people are crucial mm -hmm. in achieving uh, one health agenda. But I think because of the political sensitivity and also uh, difficulty in accessing these people, uh, research community hasn't really been able to get a grasp of what their perceptions are, what their thinkings are around resistance and so on. And I think this is one field that we should definitely be pushing as much as we can in the near future, hopefully. And the other thing that I always feel is this whole question about irrational use of antibiotics. And I, as an economist, I find it very interesting how irrationality is framed because for me, and I'm sure many economists would disagree, but for me, everyone is a rational being. And of course there is irrationality in certain practices, but whatever people are doing is not necessarily because they lack knowledge or they lack understandings of the diseases. Not always. Sometimes it is the case. But often enough, it is a rational reaction to the particular constraints in the particular environments that they're living. And I think calling this, you know, of course, from biological perspective, certain antibiotic use is irrational. But I would like to challenge this notion of irrationality by saying this is actually a rational choice that people have been making given the particular context. And that sort of research that challenges the notion of irrational use of antibiotics is, I think, still lacking. Yeah, because this is something quite important, especially when we're talking about understanding the use of antibiotics in developed countries versus low and middle income countries, right? That, right. that maybe how we see here to use antibiotics in a reasonable way is not for them the same. So we need to kind of have in mind the, all the social contexts and the historical yeah. culture that comes in those countries in order to maybe understand how they use antibiotics and to find ways for them to use them in a better way, yeah. or so-called better way. Yeah, exactly. And I think when it comes to you know coming up with the intervention policies or intervention ideas, it's quite important to not uh, jeopardize what is already going on because these are happening for a particular reasons. So I think when it comes to policy interventions, the first starting point is to recognize what they are doing, whoever it is are doing, is legitimate and it's important to potentially improve them. But without understanding the whole context, we cannot we have we have no right to claim that they are doing irrational practices. <laughs> Yeah, in your previous point, you were actually mentioning informal markets. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking that perhaps some of our listeners are not so familiar to what an informal market is, mm -hmm. especially if they are listening from countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. Could you explain just briefly what informal market means and more in the context of AMR? Yes, yeah. So informal markets are basically markets that are not regulated or officially certified. So, for example somebody who is giving out drugs or antibiotics may not be certified as a pharmacist or registered doctors or nurses, but these people exist in many of the low and middle income countries. 
in your experience, do you think that those informal markets, even though they are not certified officially, their knowledge could be equivalent to all those people that are part of the formal market, uncertified practitioners? Mm, I think without, you know, concrete research, it's very difficult to say, but um, there's, again, we haven't documented anything. So I think there's no reason to assume that their knowledge is inferior to the ones from the formal sector. I guess this is a little bit challenging, right? Because if they are out of the system, getting real data on them, it's not going to be an easy task. But perhaps it's another point and topic to bring forward and to work on. Yes. For AMR research, I can also say, you know, there's this misconception that once again, the formal providers should have better practices than informal providers, which again, we haven't really proven that. And um, through involving in this research in Myanmar, because I had quite a lot of interaction with, you know, veterinarians who are based in Myanmar, Myanmar veterinarians, and also UK. And I realized, okay, I don't know the details, details, but I also realized that some of the struggles that vets in Myanmar face are actually quite similar to vets in England might face. And that was quite interesting. So without, you know, again, addressing the constraints and context that these veterinarians are operating in both countries, we don't really get to understand their practices. And if we don't understand the practices, obviously we're not going to improve their practices. So that was another thing that was quite um, interesting to me. You know, we always think about all developing countries must be facing a lot more problems in a completely different level and so on. But it is a misconception. And I think today one of the students brought up very nicely that, you know, unorganized market also exists in high-income countries as well. We cannot just say people are different that dichotomy right yeah yeah exactly so that was another thing that i wanted to point out i would like to finish this interview by asking you something more of a curiosity what kind of topic of what do you think is something misunderstood or continuously misunderstood in your area and your field Mm. i think um i guess i find it always interesting when i speak to someone and say i'm an economist then people always think that I'm always studying money. And that's something that I find really interesting because economics is really not about money. I mean, I wouldn't say at all, but it's really about trade-offs and making smart decisions given the context, given the constraints and scarce resources. So I always find it interesting when, you know, on TV, politicians talk about economists and economic understandings. They basically mean something between finance and economics and it's always about money but I hardly study money actually so that's something that I always find interesting yeah that's actually yes maybe I wouldn't have thought about it but now that you say it yeah in a more public context when you talk about the economy right people of the country and they basically think about the growth of the yes GDP yeah and GDP so and all yeah that. yeah so that's yeah very interesting to have somebody like you that is actually an economist but not directly focusing on, on perhaps monetary growth exactly and, uh, yeah gains yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I would like to thank you so much for being with us uh, in thank this you interview and in yeah. this uh, project that we have on bringing people working on AMR in many different topics and fields. And I hope that you enjoy your stay in Uppsala and with us and maybe perhaps have you again sometime soon. Yes, thank you for inviting me. It was really my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. I think we have enough material, okay. right? Yeah, 25 minutes total. Okay.
Welcome back um, from that interview. That was actually, I have to say, the first interview I did. <laughs> I think the quality, yeah, we did it with the phones back then still. Yeah. So that's why the quality was a little bit perhaps not so great. Very Jenny, nice. what did you think about the interview? I really, really liked it. Unfortunately, I couldn't go to this workshop and I regret it. Both the speakers from this workshop that we've interviewed, I enjoyed actually doing the interview with Dr. Koldalima Hutchison before, but this interview with Dr. Ayako Abada was also just really interesting for me. Largely in part because, and she brought this up at the end also, I definitely had this prejudice against economists. That yeah, I they also... work with numbers. <laughs> yeah, when she when she was saying it, I was like, yeah, seeing myself there, and uh, I yeah. I guess it's largely part because how the media portrays economy. Yeah, I think our perception of what economics and the economy is it's all based on finances and numbers, and so I mean, she said. In part, like she got into this field because she wanted to work, among other things, with people. And mm. a lot of it kind of came down to working with resources and allocating and making these decisions on... And trades, right? Yeah, and it, trades. Like not really putting money into it, no, but perhaps but value, right? Trade-offs yeah. and values. Yeah, And, and that's what economy... I guess economy doesn't equal money. Economy no. actually equals value. And it could be knowledge, knowledgeable value, or like value that is based on knowledge, mm-hmm. value that is based on money, or yeah. value that is based on some other thing that we can think about more value than money and this was uh, yeah an a opener also for me yeah and especially with this value chain analysis side of it I mean it's clear how important it is for her to kind of get into the mindset and the experiences of the people that she's working with and she talked about her field experiences it was very I mean it's a totally different side of it and I just (laughs) thought it was really fun to hear of an economist that enjoys working with people because that was not yeah because I I guess somehow I had in my mind and maybe some people at home also have in their mind economy equaling numbers and after this interview I kind of see that economy is like a social discipline not a mathematics or or it's part of the social sciences I've always been but I always on the number side but it's not just numbers probably yeah yeah so that was yeah like you said an eye-opener for me as well but there were a few other things you brought up that I thought were really interesting and one of them was this way of portraying knowledge and how we gain knowledge and spread knowledge And that kind of ties also into what Dr. Delima Hutchison talked about before, which was this context-based approach that you can't assume that... Everybody will learn the things the same way, that the context and the background, cultural background, is not going to have an effect of how people learn or Mm -hmm. what people need to learn. And that it's not just like, oh, I know how to do this, I know what I should do, so I'm going to do it. But I mean, every decision we make is set in a context and the history and the location you're in and your experiences. And... Dr. Abada brought that in as well, as she brought up this developing knowledge versus absorbing knowledge. Yeah, that the, the, the knowledge is not something that exists and then you take it, yeah. but it's something that you create it mm-hmm. through your experiences. Right? And that it's never on an empty slate. So any kind of information that somebody takes in mm. is added on to the experiences and knowledge that they already have. It's like Everything. a mashup, right? Like you have yeah. a, a set of ingredients that you have in your plate already, mm-hmm. and then you take more ingredients. And what kind of dish you make with those ingredients will be different, yeah. right? Depending who exactly. you are. Hey, if yeah. you add sugar to one thing, it becomes like if you add sugar to hot chocolate, that tastes good. If you <laughs> add sugar to a curry, maybe. Oh, well. 
depends on the dish, but it'll be a completely different thing. I <laughs> you mean, have, you'll see the result very easily. Yeah, yeah, they're completely different things. And people, what comes out of these discussions, as mm. she brought up in these settings that she worked in, for example, in Myanmar, they might have one day workshops with farmers that they say, basically, this is what you should do. This is how you should work with antibiotics or something similar. And that they come back and see that nothing has changed or that it didn't really work like they meant to. Because one day it, throwing information at people yeah. with their own personal experiences in the background mm -hmm. is a totally different thing than somebody else with a different experience taking in that same information. Yeah, it's having the access to the information on on like a general information yeah. or that is not really targeted to a specific group might not be the best practice yeah. or the most effective way to do it. Of course, it would need a lot of resources, a lot of effort and a lot of people to do personalized mm -hmm. uh, knowledge okay. dissemination. That's why we have web pages with resources that people can access and take the best out of it. And I'm not saying that this is not good and that is not we should not have this. Of course we should. But we just want to, you know, think about that it might be not the most effective way and that if yeah. we really want to make it work, if we want to help and pursue behavioral change related to these important public health problems, we need to do more than just having the information out yeah. there. Yeah, a lot of work needs to go into maybe not individualizing, because of course you can't talk to every single person in the yeah. world and make this change, but figuring out, okay, this group, how can we improve the situation with this group of people, with their background, with the information that they have, and without hurting them. Yeah. So one of the things mm -hmm. that Ayako also brought up was um, this economic externalities, <laughs> yeah. which we had to look up. Because it's a <laughs> externalities, it was a concept yeah. I didn't know of no. before. It's like a side effect, yeah. we could say, like so a side effect of a process. Yeah. It's not something you intend for, but it is there yeah. and it has consequences. For example, I'm assuming that the issue in this case might be, oh, well, if we're reducing antibiotic use with farmers reducing livestock in Myanmar, they might get less product out of it, they might decrease their income, and their families might not be able to survive on that income, so they might no longer be farmers, and they might have to move mm -hmm. into a city and get, take a different job, and it might change the landscape of that specific community. Yeah, that, that is so complex. I know, it's When you think about complex. it, it's like having, yeah. having an account of, it's a little bit like a butterfly effect, right? Yeah. If, if you change something here, what is actually the effect mm -hmm. that is going to have down, down, the, down the chain? Yeah. It's... Um, and we talked about this before, this balance with, is it a good thing to get really personal and under, and get into the personal lives of, of the your, subjects? Of the subjects, yeah. Of, yeah. Or is there a value to being a bit distant and looking at the numbers? Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those things where it's complex. You kind of need both sides. Yeah, you because you need, need the humanity part yeah. that you are seeing that this has an effect in people's lives. But you also need to be non-biased. You mm -hmm. need to be subjective. You need to be able to draw the conclusions that the data is telling mm -hmm. you. I mean, as a scientist, I think like that, yeah. of course. But I think that's also one of the things that Dr. Abada does with her work, and that's the way she described economic, yeah. was this whole, I mean, trade-offs. Mm -hmm. How do we find the best trade-off for this? work with yeah. the best use of the resources and which interventions might be the best for that specific setting in that situation. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it really draws a focus to exactly how complex this issue is, like you said. I mean, I think she hit one of the major issues. Most interventions is just it's an information overload, really. You have yeah. three days workshop, you have two days workshop, and you just bombarded 24 hours yeah. <laughs> with information. And honestly, we, we all only have... Uh, 
15 minutes, right? Is yeah. The, the actual attention span yeah. of everybody <laughs> on average. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, 24 hours versus 15 minutes of information, you cannot really... Is it, it, yeah, just because you that. do a lot doesn't mean you are that you are going to get a lot out right. of it. Yeah. Right? Mm. right. That's a very good point, I think. Um, yeah. Because a lot of the intervention stand is still today um, it's it's a bombardment of information yeah and sure it is important and i'm not saying it's not important but we do need to recognize that oh, it's not effective might not be effective yeah. exactly yeah. what what way should we change so that we can make it more effective yeah mm-hmm. i think we've put a lot of we as a society have put a lot of effort into getting the knowledge but really there's been very little effort in studying how, how do you to... best communicate this knowledge which right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. I'm yeah. trying now to actually with something I didn't know because when I was doing research, you know, like I'm very focused on your topic and you only know mm-hmm. about your topic. But there are actually scientific journals, scientific studies that un- try to understand the communication ways, the different yeah. interventions related to AMR, which interventions have been done, yeah. how have they worked. Of course, this is much longer mm-hmm. term type of studies, right? Because you need to you do an intervention like in Sweden with the STRAMA, which is the program that tries to reduce antibiotic prescription. Just recently, they published the overall result of 20 years of work. Yeah. This is not something that you can mm-hmm. do now and then in a month time yeah. see the result. It's right. And how time, do you but... measure this change? Like mm-hmm. I know we've talked about one of these studies before that was kind of a meta-analysis of outreach to the public about AMR. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that they brought up then was this issue with how do you measure if something changed? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. do you measure it in a decrease in number of prescriptions? Do you ask a focus group of people mm-hmm. and to see if their perceptions have changed? Change, yeah. Like, how, and how also do you the, measure this? And also <laughs> the people that you, if you do focus groups to see the overall awareness, right? The people that you interview before might not be, like, not only their perception of the problem changes, the society yeah. also changes with time. So it's yeah rather, rather yeah, but yeah. it is needed anyway, anyhow. Mm-hmm. So I think... There is one more topic that I found particularly interesting in this conversation with uh, Ayako. And she explained really well what an informal market is and yeah. what does it entail. And I found incredibly enlightening the idea that these informal markets is not something that is isolated only to countries that are under development. Mm-hmm. This is something that might also be happening in developed countries yeah. and in our own societies. And we are not aware of it and we don't really know how that impacts the whole uh, public health system. Yeah, and I think it's something that those of us that maybe work in antimicrobial resistance, but from kind of a, we're from a microbiology background, so maybe we don't always think all the way through, but we think, okay, you get the licensed doctors to change and that solves the problem. But I mean, mm. that ignores not a lot of levels. Case. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. And I mean, historically, there are other cases cases where it's become very evident how people spread medicine without it going through a doctor. And one of these cases is thalidomide, mm. which was a big problem here in Europe. And, yeah. and a lot of people thought maybe we can keep using thalidomide even once they realized that this drug actually has a huge effect on developing fetuses and causes extreme uh, birth defects. Yeah, this is the drug that it was given to pregnant women yes. because of the nausea, the heavy nausea they had yeah. in the first trimester. And it, it wasn't was until long... marketed towards pregnant women at first. And until after the birth of this 
these babies from the yeah. mothers that were taking this drug, it wasn't evident that mm-hmm. this drug was actually doing something bad. Yeah, and it was realized that, of course, some of the women would not be prescribed the medication themselves. They would be given a pill from a friend or a relative or somebody else when they were experiencing nausea or other things associated with pregnancy. And it was also supposed to relax. It was a mm-hmm. anti-anxiety sort of medication in the post-war era. So there was a lot of issues there. But it became very clear here that even if you prohibited the sale of the drug to pregnant women, it could easily end up in the hands of pregnant women. <laughs> yeah. Although that's, I mean, that's a point. It might be a little bit different than what yeah. an informal market is per se, because and what she presented as informal market is actually people that are not certified, but they do act like certified yeah. vets, for example, just because their background, their family has been doing that type of job forever. Yeah. They haven't really gone through all these Mm, qualifications qualifications or like these type of regulatory uh, bodies but that doesn't mean that their knowledge is not good enough for the job they do right yeah and that's also the case in for example European countries as well there is a lot of people that maybe don't have the formal qualifications but Mm. have the knowledge experience and the knowledge yeah yeah Interesting. I think it's very brave that uh, she really tries to tackle this issue because um, she doesn't ignore the fact that there is an informal market, okay, and then we don't deal with it, but rather she suggests that we really should look at the whole picture because yeah. Yeah. it is Work part with of the it. Whole it embrace. Is. It, <laughs> it exists. You cannot just right. ignore yeah. it or say right. this because it should not. You, because you, it affects it each is other. There. Yes, yeah. of course. So that's, mm. that's very that's yeah. a, that's a very good. It's a fresh way of looking at right. it. Right. Yes. <laughs> Great, so with this, we move on to news now. Welcome to the news section. Today we have a couple different pieces. One piece that's more kind of policy and applied AMR stuff, I'd say, and one piece that's very scientific that we <laughs> yeah, like we to talk to, about. We try, we like to mix it. <laughs> yeah, mix we, it we like these different things, we like combining them. But maybe we can start on the big policy piece that came out. Yeah, this is, this is something big. Something yeah. kind of uh, very relevant. And it's something we like a lot because they bring up a lot of things that we like to talk about. Too. <laughs> yeah, this might have come up as a new thing to a lot of people. But mm-hmm. uh, to us, this is kind of our everyday bread. The things yeah. that we are talking, you and, know, you probably have heard. On the, and in the mindset that we like to think about, like this kind of complexities and there's a lot of levels. And Yeah, let's introduce yeah. it. Yeah, let's introduce it. it. So the UN Interagency Coordination on AMR that's a little bit of a tongue twister, released a report with recommendations to the Secretary General of the UN. And this group was started after the 2016 political declaration of the high-level meeting of the United Nations General Assembly on antimicrobial resistance. That's also one of these really formal names, where in this political declaration, it was proposed that an interagency group is started to look at the problem of AMR. And this is kind of the final report from that interagency group They are hoping that this group will be replaced by a more permanent sort of convening organization, but this is the end of this interagency group's work. So this is basically like a couple of years ago, it was decided, you know, AMR, antimicrobial resistance is is a big problem, and we are going to gather this group of experts that are Mm -hmm. going to look at the problem, and they're going to make a report with suggestions of how the United Nations as a group could actually maybe catalyze uh, some some, uh, changes. And kind of what needs to be done and what needs to be focused on. And they do do 
in this report, they focus a lot on like, this has been working, this is in progress, we need to put a lot more effort here and that sort of thing. So it's it's a bit nuanced. It's looking at what are the plans and what needs to be done and what needs what's a new thought that needs to be included. So just to summarize, they've kind of categorized these recommendations in five groups. So they have what they call accelerate progress in countries, meaning that we really need to accelerate the access to antibiotics like we've talked about here. Um, and not just antibiotics, vaccines and other infection control, all these sorts of things, that there are parts of the world where access is the issue, not sustainability or resistance, I mean. And they also talk about that we really need to implement national antimicrobial action plans and all these sorts of things, and that we very importantly need to stop using antibiotics as growth promoters, especially the really critical for human health antibiotics can't be used for growth promoters in veterinary animals. That's just... Should not be a thing. Should not be a thing. Uh, And I mean, you can always have a different discussion about veterinary health and actually treating sick animals. And in many cases, that's actually a problem of access as well. Logistics as well, right? Because when you have uh, conditions that are not so sanitary and so healthy for animals, of course, you are promoting that if an animal is sick, many are going to get sick. You're going to have to use more antibiotics. So kind of have a a system where you don't use them for growth, but also Mm -hmm. you prevent, have to overuse them also for health. Yeah. And that's something they talk about a lot here because they have this one health perspective that we've talked about before that human health, animal health, uh, the environment, all of this ties together and they're not you need to think of them as a whole and not as separate parts yeah, as much. Like multisectorial that kinda of works together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is again a huge part of <laughs> what we've uh, been saying, yeah. What we've <laughs> talked about here. And they do also talk a lot in here about um, increased access to sanitation and um, healthy water supply and general health stru- structure, infection control both in humans and animals and all of this sorts of things. All of this is central. Yeah, because one thing that I liked about this report, and you guys are going to be able to access the whole report if you want, and also there is a very nice uh, summary of the Mm. key concepts and the key recommendations, and is how they actually explain really well why and how this is a One Health issue. And also they explain really well, which I think we have mentioned before, how AMR challenges and relates to the Sustainable Development Goals, which is something that is on the global political agenda at the moment, and how if we don't help the problem or reduce the accumulation of resistance, then the Sustainable Development Goals are probably not going to be met. Yeah, they were very straightforward with that, that antibiotic resistance is right now standing in the way of the success of the sustainable development goals, which obviously that means we need to deal with it. (laughs) Yeah, and and as we mentioned before, for example, from this REACT report on on finance uh, availability for AMR, how this could be helping the narrative and and catalyzing that more funds are actually put into, into AMR. And speaking of that, one of the specific recommendations is also invest for a sustainable response. So here they talk a lot about, of course, we need to invest. And they make some clear points that in high-income countries, this investment will cost less than the benefits that we get from this. So, of course, AMR is going to be very costly in the future if we don't deal with the problem now. Yeah. <laughs> and so this, what they're saying now is the investments that we would make now to prevent the problem will cost less than dealing with it in the future. So this, yeah, this is, is another thing only, we've been hearing. And, yeah, yeah. And this is only a positive thing. They do make it clear that in low and middle income countries, this might not be the case, but that they're still very reasonable investments, that it's not an insane amount of money and everything like that. They say it's very, it's moderate, it's reasonable. And on that, because they do bring this up that there it's, I mean, you have to do whole sorts of investments in infrastructure and you need to build everything up a bit more from the ground up, which is important, of course. And that's 
again, something we've talked about here, that health infrastructure and everything plays a huge role Mm -hmm. in the problems of a specific country. Uh, They also mention that, of course, innovation to secure the future. They talk about um, public, private, and philanthropic donors and how we need to increase investment in providing new antimicrobials, new compounds, diagnostics, vaccines, waste management, all of this sort of thing. They also talk about innovating like research and how we implement these things and doing using things the best and all those sorts of things, not just the actual products, but all of these surrounding things. Also the knowledge. Yeah, and, and that's um, a lot that the we've progress also, about it. Yeah, we've also touched on this before that we need not just research and development within the actual products themselves, but when the, with the whole, I mean, management, infection control, all of these sorts of things need to be developed. Surveillance and yeah. uh, stewardship, as we talked yeah. about. So that's very important. They also talk about one of the main goals is to collaborate for more effective action, which I thought was quite nice that they bring up this whole, we need to collaborate within groups. I mean, promote civil society groups and other things. And also just information sharing was something that they brought up a lot in this report to be more open and transparent in information. And when producing new uh, products and other things that we maybe share and collaborate a bit more, which is easier said than done. Yeah, I guess it would be really good if from these, you know, one of the recommendations they also do is that there's going to be more groups that are assembled from the United Nations level yeah. so all the member states can actually share information. Yeah. So, of course, not all countries in the world are member states of the United Nations, but it would be a start that, yeah. that to coordinate this kind of global response, which we've been talking all the time, that yeah. this is what we hope that it will happen and we believe is the only way that it can actually mm-hmm. be done. But it has to come from somewhere, right? And yeah. I guess and the it United has Nations. support behind it. Yeah. And it's easier when it's this global collaboration then. I mean, that, that mm. kind of brings people more into it. It's not, oh, these people decide what we're doing now, basically. It's a little bit more collaborative. Mm-hmm. So that actually ties into their last goal is this strength and accountability and global governance. And this is also touches again on things we've talked about before, that they need to enhance the organizational capacity across countries, set new target setting, also help countries develop on their specific priorities for that country, adequate funding. And then, as you mentioned, they recommend the establishment of the One Health Global Leadership Group on Antimicrobial Resistance, which is kind of what they want to replace this organization, mm-hmm. this group. And they also recommend that an independent panel on evidence for action against antimicrobial resistance is convened, which is where they could prevent this this data and data sharing. And you could really bring up evidence and talk about what the evidence-based policies should be. And the reality of the yeah. situation in the different countries. Is, as exactly. Well. Yeah. And work on harmonizing. I mean, for example, we talked recently about the resistance testing methods and how they vary between these and yeah, right? there's no this global is, harmony. something really good that these kind of groups could actually yeah. establish, right? To okay. really provide this way of actually, we can actually measure the same thing in different places. <laughs> yeah, it's something basic that, yeah, so... So that's a huge report in weight, but it's actually a quite easy read. So I think if anyone's interested, please go for it and read more. And it's like you said. Yes, and if you are maybe not so interested in reading the whole thing, I believe that the, the summary is quite comprehensive and quite complete and good to give you an idea of of what is the importance of it. Actually, in in this summary uh, report, I think they do a wonderful job on the key message part to show why this is a global crisis, Mm -hmm. which we already know, but like point by point why. 
why is an urgent matter? It's yeah. a global crisis that we need to take care of now. And also, um, what are the main key aspects where we need to be working on? Which, yeah, this is yeah. Um, maybe a repeated narrative that we have here, but we want to always especially show that if this is has gotten up as high as the United Nations level, yeah. it means something. Very few um, things have gotten to that level. So it, it, it bears weight that it has gotten to this level. But that doesn't mean that the problem is solved. No, of course not. That's a yeah. lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, this is very much just a starting position, yeah. basically. But I really liked that they they talk about, you know, what needs to be done, what hasn't been thought about properly. But they also bring up, this has been successful. Maybe we should keep doing this. Maybe this needs to be financed more continuously and more, I mean, permanently. And it's it's it brings up a lot of different things that I think And in case uh, you don't want to get as technical as the report or the summary uh, the New York Times has also published a very nice uh, public opinion article about yeah. this report uh, which, with a kind of interesting video summing up the problem as yeah. well so we're going to leave a link to that yeah lots of links for this one yeah so um, yeah so I want to talk about a very cool paper that has been published very recently in Nature Biotechnology uh, back on the 15th of April. This is a letter, so it's a little bit more difficult to read type of uh, scientific article. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a collaboration between France and Spain uh, by the group of Didier Marcel, which is found at the um, uh, Institut Pasteur in Paris. Mm-hmm. And this is actually a proof of concept type of, of basic science, I would say, yeah. because what they are doing is to show that we can kill bacteria in a specific manner, right? So the the basis of this is that um, when we are trying to treat infections, uh, nowadays we have, of course, antibiotics that will kill it, and we have some more broad-spectrum antibiotics and narrow-spectrum antibiotics. So broad-spectrum antibiotics, it means it will kill a lot of different bacteria. Narrow-spectrum, it means that it will kill maybe not so many different bacteria, but kind of a subset, but it's still yeah. different species of bacteria, most probably, that belong to a specific group. So the idea is that um, to prevent problems that come from killing bacteria that you actually don't want to kill while you are treating an infection, which produces a lot of problems. Um, uh, for example, we call it dysbiosis, when you actually are taking antibiotics and you are killing some of the bacteria in your gut that actually do good things. And that that also maybe allows bad bacteria or not so good bacteria to colonize and to take mm-hmm. over the population in the guts, like uh, Clostridium difficile or C. diff, C. diff yeah. that people know it about. So if we are able to, to find ways where we know what bacteria is causing an infection and we can kill just a specific bacteria, then we get rid of all these side effects mm-hmm. and we can have a much more efficient treatment. So the idea of this group is that they they wanted to find a way where you can kill just a specific uh, type of bacteria and even more specific, just an antibiotic-resistant variant of this type of bacteria. And in this case, they are working with uh, Vibrio cholerae, which is uh, a bacteria that most of you probably have heard that at least heard of the cholera. Cholera disease, yeah. And actually, this is quite interesting because Vibrio cholerae 
per se, the bacteria is not pathogenic and it's not a problem and it lives in the water, it lives in the seas. Mm -hmm. But if it contains a specific toxin, which is the cholera toxin, then when it expresses that toxin, it produces a cholera disease. Yeah. So what this group has shown is that they are able to deliver a specific toxin by conjugation, which is a system where you can send a specific piece of DNA from one bacteria to another. Mm -hmm. So they have been able to show that they can have design a toxin that will be delivered to bacteria by conjugation and that it will only kill the bacteria that is expressing a specific protein inside that bacteria. So, Which is connected to this toxin that causes the disease cholera. Yeah, the cholera yeah. toxin. So that's why it's so specific. So this protein inside the is it's only inside the pathogenic vibrio, not yeah. the non-pathogenic vibrio. And they have also, uh, this is also related to the possible um, resistant uh, variants as well. So they've been able to show that they could kill just the bacteria containing this pathogenic um, element and also this resistant element. And they have shown it, you know, as a control, both in Vibrio, but also moving these resistant genes to E. coli. Yeah. And then in mixed populations of Vibrio and E. coli and E. coli with and without the resistant patterns, they can show that they can just kill the ones that mm -hmm. uh, are the problem. And so. kill almost all of the ones that are the problem. Yeah, so it's like, very it's targeted. Very targeted. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really interesting. It's one of those things that... I mean, this is one specific case, and they talk about it themselves like that. You you need to find this similar system in other strains if you're looking for something specific. But it is a very interesting proof of concept, and this is we talked about this before. This is where everything starts. Yeah, you have exactly. to find it once and show that it works, and then you can develop it and hopefully find a really nice target that'll work. In. Yeah, and, and they mentioned, for example, that this system kind of needs a specific protein to be ex expressed inside the, yeah. the, the, the targeted cell. But a lot of these uh, resistant elements we've talked that are contained to plasmids, mm -hmm. and plasmids in general have these uh, proteins that help the expression of the resistant genes in the plasmid. Yeah. So then it is more suitable that you will be able to find these elements in these resistant bacteria to use them as the target uh, yeah. for, for the specific killing. So it could be a really interesting thing to look at more in the future. I mean, of course, there's a lot of work left to do, but this is step one and it's really cool. Mm, it's really, I'm, 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 I'm all for basic science and for proof of concepts and yeah. and that this idea actually is being materialized and they can show that they can kill specifically. Yeah. This is really nice. So we are going to leave, uh, of course, the link to the original article and this is also being picked up in the media mm -hmm. uh, with the press release. So there's uh, we will leave a link to a more mainstream or public Public opinion. Public media Public. article as well. Yeah. yeah. So, Good. yeah. So, just a couple of notes more we want to say before closing up our news section. Yeah, which... we have one. Uh, there's one organization that we've talked about before, Guard P. And Guard P is going independent, which is great. <laughs> yeah. we, we have mentioned before that they were kind of part of the NDI initiative. Yeah. Uh, and they've been incubated by them for the past three years. But now they have actually announced that they, they have moved... Yeah, they they are from or they announced on the second of April that they are now a legal, an independent legal entity following a successful three-year incubation. So that's really good news. That kind of shows that this sort of system, this sort of organization, works. And Guard P works to um, develop antibiotics to kind of work in funding maybe small organizations that need help getting through 
to actually develop new antibiotics. And they're not the only one of their kind, but this is really nice to see. But that, they've done really wonderful jobs. Yeah, they've so done. Really re- good, they've yeah. had a lot of success stories and things that have worked very well. So it's nice to see that this project is going to continue and that this is a pretty successful way to go about the problem. Yes. So that's nice. Yes. And then the other thing we wanted to say is that, uh, well, this is a regular episode with our mm-hmm. regular structure, but uh, then we're going to have another release before we release the next regular episode because uh, a couple of weeks ago I went to ECMIT, the European Conference of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. (laughs) I did that by heart. (laughs) Good memory. Um, Yeah, Uh, I was there. It was crazy. It was hectic. It was very interesting, but also... It's a huge conference, isn't it? Yeah, like... Thousand, I mean, almost 10,000 people. 13,000, I think, this year. It was the biggest so far. Um, and what I wa- one of the things I did it was just to go around and interview young researchers during the poster sessions. So you are going to be having a special episode uh, with, with those short uh, interventions that I did there. So yeah. that should be coming up in a couple of weeks from now. Yeah. Yes. So keep an eye out. Yes. And also just one really short note for those of you that are in the EU. The EU elections are coming up. And please take the time to look at who's running if you want to vote for somebody that has done some work on antimicrobial resistance because this is one of those fields where antimicrobial resistance can have yeah, a higher more impact. At, at global, yeah, uh, on a, more at a European level. Yeah, exactly. A... So just just a note, if you want to, make sure you read up on that before you vote in the EU elections. Yeah, this is, this is a good note. <laughs> thank you, Jenny. <laughs> um, thank you all of you for being with us uh, this month and yeah, uh, hope, hope to have you back in the next episode. Yes. Thank Bye. you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.